The reading this morning is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. Unity and maturity in the body of Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks be to God for his word. Website of the Fools, some of you may know, ran a competition to find the best Christian joke. And this was the winner. It's a little bit American, but um, you'll get the point. I was walking along a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump. 
I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's a lot to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes. He said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Yeah, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. So I said, die heretic scum and pushed him off. We're continuing to work our way through Ephesians, and we've reached chapter 4, and this great hymn to Christian unity. And it's quite funny that when Shepherd Falls did that, uh, that little competition, it was a joke about Christian unity that won. And I want to look at two things. What does this tell us about God, and what does it mean for us? So let's start with that first question. What does this tell us about God? And I think the main thing it tells us is that unity is God's idea. It's not our idea. And it's more than just getting on with other people. It's more than being nice to each other. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. The word one appears seven times. One body, one, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. And we can divide those seven things into three groups. There's God himself, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Notice all three persons of the Trinity mentioned there. Then there's our faith. We have one hope. That's our hope in Jesus, our hope of forgiveness and eternal life. And one faith. And thirdly, there's the church, one body, one baptism. So with baptism, what Paul is saying is that if you're baptized into one congregation or local church then you're baptised into the whole church of God. So it's a statement about the oneness of the church. This is such a short, simple at first glance, three verses, but there's so much there. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, salvation, the church. So in Paul's mind, the unity of all these things are bound up in each other. Unity, oneness, is a fundamental part of who God is. And it's a fundamental part of God's plan for his world. Unity is not just a nice add-on to God's plan for his world. It is his plan for the world. God's intention for the world was that God would be in relationship with humanity, humanity in relationship with creation, Creation in relationship with God. Got the three persons of the Trinity in relation with each other, and then humanity in relationship with itself as well. Then sin comes along and destroys those relationships. So, an integral part of God's rescue plan for the world and the creation of his kingdom is the rebuilding of those relationships. That's why unity matters. It's not an optional add-on. It's not something we do when everything else has been sorted. 
It's not something we only do with those we get on with or those people we agree with. It's God's vision for his world and it's God's vision and wish for his church. One church with no divisions. Nick was discussing this a few weeks ago when we were back in chapter 2 where Paul was discussing the joining together of Jews and Gentiles in the church. You might remember Nick using the illustration of water from the river Tamar and the river Plym coming together in such a way in Plymouth Sound that you can't tell which river the water came from. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us as a church family and as individual Christians in the wider body of Christ? Well, in verses 11 to 16, Paul gives us some thoughts. But before that, I just want to mention one point. This uh, letter is what biblical scholars call an occasional letter. It's a letter written for an occasion. It's a letter written to a specific group of people in a specific situation at a specific time about a specific problem or issue. This is not Paul's complete and universal guide to Christian unity. There are other reasons uh, for and benefits of unity, but for whatever reason, Paul, in this letter, chooses not to discuss them in these, these particular verses. So what I'm saying is, don't think that just because Paul doesn't mention them here, that he didn't think they were important, or for that matter, that we shouldn't think they're important. So what Paul concentrates on in this passage is the benefits to us of being part of a church family. Why be part of a church? In the previous chapters, Paul has been discussing how Jesus' death and resurrection have destroyed the barriers between us and God. That through his selfless sacrifice on the cross, sin has been defeated. The barrier that our behaviour, our turning away from God has created, has been destroyed. Jesus has made it possible for everyone to have access to God. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, as it says in chapter 3, verse 12. The next question is, so what? What should our response be? What difference should it make for our lives? How do we lead the life that God wants us to lead? And for some people, that's an easy question. Don't sin. Don't do the things we shouldn't do, and do do the things we should and of course, that's part of it. But for me, it's more, more than that. It's deeper than that. Being a Christian isn't a binary situation. It's not just a case of being a Christian or not being a Christian. We need to grow closer to Jesus, allowing God to transform us into the person we were supposed to be. Building those relationships with God and each other that I was mentioning just a moment ago. Growing closer to God. Hopefully there's uh, at least a few people here who are now thinking of the terms bounded versus centred sets. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about or want to refresh you, go and listen to my sermon from last year. It's on the church website. Um, but the Christian life is a life of growth. In verse 13, Paul describes his desire that we are to be built up, becoming mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Note the 
the growth language in those words. Paul also uses that phrase, the fullness of Christ, in chapter 3. And I really loved Nick's illustration of that from a couple of weeks ago. He's the idea of a hot air balloon. A balloon is just a flat 2D shape until it's filled with air. Then it takes on its true state. It's only when we're filled with Christ that we take on our true state. It's only when we're filled with Christ that the world can see Christ in us. The Christian life is not a static one. It should be a life of constant growth, moving towards Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that one of the purposes of this united church is that it helps support that growth. And it helps us in the work of the church in making Jesus known in the world. To put it simply, Paul is saying that the Christian life is a team effort. You are not on your own. Firstly, as Nick was just mentioning earlier, there are people within the church who have gifts different from our own. Here Paul mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. That course is not uh, a completely um, exclusive list. There are other people and gifts that work within a church. And of course it's not the only time in one of Paul's letters when he makes that particular point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 immediately springs to mind, I'm sure. Churches bring together people with different gifts who can support us in our learning, in our growing, and in our service as well. When I think about this church, I'm staggered by the breadth of skills and talents within it. We all have our gifts, and I'm very grateful for that. So many people can do things that I can't. And all of this helps us keep on the straight and narrow. As it says in verse 14, then we will no longer be infants. Notice that infants, again, going back to the whole idea of growth and growing. No longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Having those people around you have the gift of teaching really does help. But also just having people around you who set a good example, who you can use as inspiration. And we sometimes we talk about peer pressure, don't we? Normally when we're talking about teenagers and teenagers doing things that they maybe shouldn't be doing. But peer pressure can be a good thing sometimes. What sociologists call social pressure. It's been shown that people do tend to change their behaviour to fit those around them. So if we are changing our behaviour to fit those around us, we need to be careful about who we have around us. So who are your examples? Here at NBC or in the rest of your life? What Christian books do you read? Podcasts you listen to? Things like that. Who do you learn from? And who do you look up to as an example in your life? Then we have the verse about speaking the truth in love. And I want to touch on this one because I know there are people in this church who have been hurt by people who thought they were speaking truth in love. They've received a nasty email which ended in love, as if that made it okay. Or maybe there was a horrid meeting or conversation and at the end somebody tried to give them a hug to make it all okay. 
It's very easy to hurt someone when you tell them something you think they need to hear. So here are my thoughts on how to speak truth in love. I think the first thing to say is that it's got nothing to do with intentions. Too many people think as long as they mean well, if their intentions are good, then they are acting in love. You know, the sort of thing. It's for your own good. I'm just saying this because I care. I don't want you to get hurt. Just because someone means well doesn't mean that everything they say or do somehow becomes loving. How we say things, what we say, what we don't say, when we say it, these are all important. But I would go even further than that. I think to really speak the truth in love, in my opinion, means speaking it in the context of an existing loving relationship. Whether that's a family relationship or a close friendship or a romantic relationship. You need to have built up that trust and respect that comes with those sort of relationships. There needs to be a track record of you helping and supporting and loving them in the past. And I'll be honest, there's probably only a handful of people who would actually listen to seriously. Only a few people who would say to me, if they said to me, Tim, I, I think you've let yourself down and you've let God down there, that I'd actually probably take that really seriously. I could probably count them on maybe one hand, maybe two. I mean, most people, if I'm completely honest, if they came up to me and said something like that, I'd probably say, mind your own business. Just being honest. A um, couple of little disclaimers to add there. Firstly, this is to do with the personal behavior that's between an individual and God. If someone's done something that's personally hurt or damaged you, then you have every right to call them out on that. And there's a process in 1 Timothy for that. Uh, something Paul suggests. And secondly, if somebody's in a position of leadership in a church and there is some problem with that leadership, then it's appropriate to criticize them for that. So if you do disagree with any part of this sermon, then feel free to tell me. Uh, that does come with the territory of standing up here. But if you're talking about something personal, something between God and that individual, then really think about your relationship with them before saying anything to them. And on the flip side, cultivate those relationships in your life. Those people who can feel able to put you to one side and tell you some truths if you need to hear them. Building up that little support group, that accountability group, is really important. We are not on our own. We have each other to help and guide us. But above all of that, we have Jesus. Verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God is our helps, is by our side, helping and guiding us. He is the ultimate source of our gifts and talents. In Jesus, we have the ultimate example of love and service. And in the Holy Spirit, we have the ultimate guide who speaks the truth in love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the people in this church. Thank you for 
the gifts and talents that you've given them. Thank you for the love and service they give to everybody within the church. Thank you for uh, being with us. Thank you for being our ultimate guide and example and supporter and strengthener. Amen.